Speaking of questionable material, my son has decided to finally watch Star Wars in its entirety. Okay. I, Star Wars is fine. I'm not mm-hmm. a fanatic. I enjoy it. Whatever. It's nostalgic. Uh, I watched all three of the prequels when they came out and promptly did not watch them since then. That's the correct response. But now that he's watching them, I, in turn, sat and watched the three prequels with him. Right. The first one is fine. It's not good. It's not great. It is competent. That might be an overstatement, but we'll go with it. Competent filmmaking. The next two are absolute trash. Yes. The only thing, like the fight at the very end of the third movie is good filmmaking in the sense of like making a cinematic, making it, you know, emotional. And that was a lot of you and McGregor just screaming at the camera incoherently. Yes. But yeah, the rest of it. And the fact that they were fighting on a, a lava flow was problematic from a, a human beings being able to survive in sulfuric 500 degree conditions yeah i mean breathing alone would have seared their lungs to char well there's this whole lack of oxygen situation that i feel like has completely (laughs) glossed over which would kill them first the fact that their lungs are seared and can no longer absorb oxygen or the fact there is no oxygen to absorb it's a great question it's a great question i feel like the searing would cause like internal and external like third degree burns so you would be like this is kind of like a flat world situation, flatland situation where you're like, you're being burned in three dimensions. Yeah. I don't think there's a good answer. Maybe they shouldn't have put it there. Correct. I think that's the answer. Well, the biggest, the biggest problem with the movies is that they're boring. Yes. What? Wait, 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 wait. You mean to tell me that you don't want to sit there and listen to literally hours of conversation in a parliament about trade reform? That it's not particularly interesting. I know I'm not breaking ground here. The second worst thing is the acting and dialogue. Especially the dialogue. Cause Especially. I do think that the most of the actors did the best they could with what they had. It's I'm just... not impugning the actors. It's the writing and direction. Mm, mm, mm-hmm. Like, they did what they could with what they were handed. And they have proved that by being very good in other movies. Right. (laughs) And then the third thing, and this really bothers me, is despite the enormous number of action sequences in the movie, the actual direction of of the action is not very good. It's terrible. It's a thousand percent terrible. And 90% of the reason for that is that it was blue screen. That's definitely a problem. I think you can still do it with a blue screen. It's just like when you're shooting an action sequence, there is a way to do it that builds tension and then relieves the tension. There's a story you're telling through the actions that they're taking. Right. And this is just like a hundred cuts to people (laughs) waving lightsabers. And that's it. And the way that they fight changes from movie to movie and from within the movie from fight to fight, which of course completely breaks all canon when it comes to uh, old men swinging broomsticks at each other, which makes up four, five, and six. <laughs> also true. I, you know, at Return of the Jedi, there was at least some level of acrobatics to. Yeah, the there was some, were. there was some wire work there that was creative. And, you know, I think a lot of it, although still was made better by just Mark Hamill, doing rage face like angry teenager he's really good at it rebelling against dad yeah anyway so uh the fact that i didn't seen them in like 15 years or whatever uh, i thought i would see them with a different eye and i did and it was an even more critical eye than i did when i first saw them like not only was i right to begin with i have notes Hello, alleged human, and welcome to the Star Wars, I mean, Chaos Lever podcast. My name is Ned, and I'm definitely not a robot. I apologize for the week off. You know, it was it was simply time for my annual maintenance, I mean, um, vacation, 
Everyone knows that a good system reset every solar cycle is so essential to maintaining peak operating condition while sustaining ideal viscosity and subsystem health. So go grab a cold one. After all, it's 167558800 somewhere. Am I right? With me is Chris, who is also here. Let's vaguely, talk vaguely, barely, uh, with a significant amount of effort and a little bit of uh, mental distortion. Yes. Um, you and I both went to Cloud Field Day. Because I am immune to viruses, uh, or at least of the biological type, uh, I came back fine, hale and hearty and healthy. But uh, you, you found something out there, and and it was not the blue skies of California. No, no, it was the COVID of California. Although, if I'm being honest, I blame the Phoenix to Philadelphia leg. Arizona is a cesspool of disease. It's an untrustworthy state. Absolutely. And I, I can see that. that I believe that they they have a rule in their constitution that says that microbes aren't a thing. I'm not going to rule it out. I'm just not going to. And, and fortunately, looking at the podcast statistics, we have no listeners in Arizona. So this is <laughs> absolutely fine. <laughs> um, so yeah, TLDR, COVID, bad. I don't recommend it. Um, zero out of 10. Three out of 10 with rice. All right. All right. All right. You, you, you're feeling uh, 80% capacity at this point? So it's weird. Um, the cough is sticking around, which is awesome. So I'll Love try it. to warn you when that happens so that we mm. can work around it. Um, but what happens is I'll be relatively okay. And then my level of energy just goes down to like 20%. And I am just worthless for two hours, which is different than normal, where I'm consistently worthless all day long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, so, I feel that. Similar experience I, on my end with that. I was planning on going to this uh, AWS thing tomorrow, and I just, I can't do it. I can't trust that I'm going to, that's a lot of work to get from here to New York Mm -hmm. To do all that stuff, I feel like, A, I'm not confident in the whole contagious situation at the moment. But B, like my level of energy, I don't want to be stranded over there and completely just fall, you know, have my energy fall through the floor. Right. And pass out in a conference chair. Right. If I want to do that, I want to do it properly. Yes. At because, the conference bar. Right. Uh, well, I was going to say because you drank too much coffee and then had a major caffeine crash in the afternoon. But you know. oh, yeah, well, that's true. That's the morning. That's the morning pass out. Yes, I, I'm more a fan of the post lunch pass out. Personally, mm -hmm. like 2 p.m. Just out. That is my that's my goal. And I enjoy it, especially you just in hide my... behind a potted plant and why hide up it? in the fetal position. You know, I'm trying to bring it to the fore, bring it to people's attention so it can become socially acceptable. So nap time in the middle of the conference room. Absolutely. So that's my goal tomorrow. I will be there, uh, you know, holding the torch for both of us. And I will take a nap in the middle of a conference hall in a chair for you. I like it. Okay. Don't get COVID. I, I will be wearing a mask. <laughs> you better believe it. <laughs> well, since you're um, somewhat vocally impaired, I'm going to talk. <laughs> so let's Cannot talk about wait. some tech garbage. Let's do it. DevOps, more like Ops Dev, am I right? Ah. Or, or Dev Oops. Dev Oops is another good one. <laughs> I think that was it somewhere in the in the Twitter uh, thread was Dev Oops or Oops Dev. Um, or Oops, I just, you know, destroyed production oops. after a Git commit. Oops, I did it again. <laughs> ah, yes, the Britney condition. I'm, I'm familiar <laughs> with it. Well, okay, so this post, this... um. This long-form topic was inspired by two things. Uh, first, I recently read an interesting post by Lee Briggs called, quote, DevOps is a failure, end quote. An incendiary title, to be sure. He also got to the front page of Hacker News with that title, so well done, Lee. He is a developer advocate over at Pulumi and an op opinionated Englishman. Not that there's any other type. And uh, his central argument is that DevOps never lived up to its promise, 
and instead is really just a bunch of ops people trying to adopt dynamic tooling and desperately trying unsuccessfully to get devs to care about ops in any meaningful way. You could say that post resonated with my personal experience. You resemble that remark? I do. As a result, last week, I wrote the following tweet. Quote, can we just admit that DevOps is really about skilling up ops people to learn dev tooling and process? Maybe that wasn't the intention, but it sure seems like the reality. End quote. So that was my tweet. What do you think happened, Chris? Everybody politely thought about it, you know, and had some reasons and measured responses based on their own personal experience and what they would like to see in the future. You're cute. We'll keep you around. <laughs> I think my favorite reply was just the emoji where someone's blowing uh, air out their nose four times. That's it. That was, I was like, well, what else is there to say? Really? They, they said it all. Uh, you know, a picture is worth a thousand words. So that, that single reply was 4,000 words. Which is amazing considering the character limit. I know. It's really condensing the information out uh, down there. So uh, people did have feelings ranging from enthusiastic agreement to outright condemnation. And uh, my other favorite reply that actually had words in it was this, quote, awfully wrong. Dev teams quite often have no clue how to run prod environments. Teams were siloed before DevOps. There is a lot on CICD that didn't exist before DevOps. You speak as if devs had the ultimate knowledge, quote, skill up ops. It is about collaboration. Worst def I ever read, end quote. Like I said, a calm, measured response. Now, we had a little back and forth, this poster and me, after that one, and came to a bit more of an agreement because he took my initial post to mean that the devs are teaching the ops people how to ops. Mm. And I was like, no, 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 sir. That's not what I meant. I simply meant that ops are teaching themselves dev tooling because they have to. Right. And then you called him a garbage person and got him deported. You know, uh, yeah, that was kind of how it went. There was a little more nuance to that. Uh, more name calling, um, some some subtweeting, and maybe even a quote, quote tweet thrown in there. Uh, but yeah, so <laughs> Twitter's always good for nuanced discussion. As far as those conversations go, this one was actually pretty tame and civilized. Uh, I acknowledge that a flippant tweet that I dashed off in a couple of minutes lacks a ton of context around it. So you read that in and apply your own personal context to whatever you see in that tweet. And that's how you tend to respond to those things. It's really not the platform for nuance. Since you and I have a platform for a longer form discussion, I'm going to use this proverbial soapbox and stand on it. And has the soapbox gone through QA? Uh, no, we just did some unit tests. Seems structurally sound. We'll see how it works out. <laughs> just put it directly into production. That's, That's the worst right. that could happen. Ah, total collapse of the soapbox. <laughs> oh, it's like a platform. Oh my God, we've gone full circle. Anyway. <laughs> So, like, we'll start with what DevOps was supposed to be, because that's part of the context. Oh, good. We've immediately gone to definitions. So, Merriam-Webster defines DevOps as... I'm just kidding. Merriam-Webster doesn't give a fig about DevOps. May not even have it in its lexicon. Um, so, some people talk about DevOps like it's a philosophy. Others like to compare it to a process. And still others like to say things like, it's a cultural shift in your organization to break down silos and enhance communications and collaboration. Of course, sometimes silos are good. We'll get back to that in a moment, but that's probably the closest accurate definition. It's taking your developers and taking your ops folks and having them collaborate together to enhance the software development and deployment process, especially the deployment side. Right. And when you say deployment, we're talking about stability, performance, 
features, reliability, mm-hmm. security should be thrown in there somewhere, but somewhere. come on. <laughs> Who's got time for that? But it's really the reason these two things got mushed together is that historically they have been heavily siloed, much to the point that your uh, communication friend was leaning on. Developers wrote code, operations folks made it something that was available to other people. And all a developer would say is, well, it works on my laptop and then leave. Right. And to a certain degree, developers and ops people were working in completely different spheres. You know, the developer would sit in their IDE all day, writing code, running it in a sandbox on their laptop or desktop. And then when they felt that it was good enough, they would check it into source control and then run it through a build process and then give those build artifacts to ops, like in the form of zip files or something along those lines. And then ops would be the ones who would have to then take those zip files and success successfully deploy those build artifacts to whatever environments existed on the infrastructure. And that was generally a very manual process, at, at least at the outset. And the introduction of virtualization and then especially cloud made it necessary to automate that process. Right. So that's kind of where DevOps is. We'll get deeper into that in a moment, but I want to point out a couple of things that DevOps is not, though you'll see it all the time. One is it's not a job. When you see a job posting for DevOps engineer, be careful because no one knows what the hell that means. Does it mean a developer who's going to be working on a DevOps team? Like maybe? Does it mean an SRE who's responsible for operating and deploying software? Maybe? Is it going to be the scrum master who's in charge of a DevOps team? Could also be. So yeah, if you see that as a job posting, um, either run screaming or at least ask for clarification. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the times that sort of thing could also just simply mean HR just heard about Agile. (laughs) Well, Agile certainly, uh, you see it. That's all it is, Ned. Hmm. You do see- I should have responded to you in Twitter and said that. (laughs) (laughs) You're a jerk. See, this is what happens when COVID, man. I lose my ability to be an agent provocateur. And, And the world is sadder for it. Indeed. The other thing that DevOps is definitely not is a product. Mm. Um, is it Maddie Stratton who says, uh, you can't buy DevOps, but I'll certainly sell you some? <laughs> Something along those lines. So uh, it's not a product. People will slap the label DevOps on things in the same way that they slap AI or ML or I don't know, what's the current buzzword du jour? I feel like doesn't matter. There's going to be doesn't. one, whatever it is right now that everybody puts as the, you know, the label on their product to make it sell better. You can ignore that and actually look at what the product does because you can't sell DevOps as a service. <laughs> you know, Oracle has a DevOps service. That's how you know that it's over. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that's what DevOps was supposed supposed to be. It was supposed to be this collaboration between developers and ops people to enhance the entire software development lifecycle. What have I actually seen in my experience? And Chris, feel free to jump in with your own experience because we both did a lot of consulting. From my perspective, when doing consulting and also now teaching, talking to people who are trying to use you know, tooling like Terraform or Vault, it mostly seems like ops folks learning dev stuff. And it doesn't seem so much like dev folks wanting to learn anything about ops. For example. Now, my bias is towards ops anyhow, because that's what I did, you know, working as a sysadmin, working as a consultant to deploy systems that were mostly for operations teams. That's the people that I was most familiar with and working closely with. Working with devs didn't come up as much. So no. I'm wondering if you had if any experience in 
working with the development side of the house? So I think that goes into something that brings up the concept of DevOps with the wider world. And that is building applications that run in containers. Hmm. Go on. So, I mean, the short story here is ordinarily you would write a program. It would be uh, some type of a monolith that you would download and execute on your, on your own computer. Mm-hmm. When you got into cloud-based things or hosted SaaS or stuff like that, the applications started to be much more widely distributed, which necessitated this communication between devs and operations types people. And I think that's where a lot of what you're talking about is, is coming from with, uh, well, we'll call them normies. Um, they're used to the idea of this application doesn't run on your computer anymore. It runs in the cloud and it has to be able to satisfy the request from anybody anywhere, which means that the developer working alone in isolation is only half the battle mm. anymore. Now the operations part really matters. How do we get a user who's in, let's say, APAC, Korea, to use this application and have the same experience as somebody that's using it who is who lives within 100 miles of US East 1. <laughs> so what you're saying is it's it's in part the distributed nature of applications today. The fact that they they tend to be built out of these sort of microservices that run on containers. Right. But it's also in a larger uh, context the fact that that distributed application is going to run in multiple regions, depending on your audience. Right. And it makes the the connection between developers and operations far more necessary. Mm -hmm. Because if you're not working as a developer, if you're not working in conjunction with the ops team, for example, when you design your database, (laughs) you're going to have a bad time. Um. A lot of times this means developers are learning things from the operations side that they never had to care about before. So for example, if you build Elasticsearch into your application and you do not understand Elasticsearch, you will immediately have a huge security problem on your hands. (laughs) Yeah, very true. And to a certain degree, I think, I actually hear this from network folks a lot, is that developers would ask the network to do things that it was never intended to do. And instead of pushing back and saying, no, the network doesn't do that. Network engineers did a lot of things, a lot of weird workarounds and shims to make the network do what the application wouldn't. Right. And you can extend that to a larger degree to what ops was forced to do because developers didn't know or didn't care to know how the application was going to run in production, especially if it's running across a distributed architecture. Right, because what you would end up with is just, this is what needs to happen, get it done. And make it happen faster. Right, and you build those shims and you build these one-off solutions and you use layer seven load balancing in ways it was never intended to work. And you create these these monsters that are impossible to maintain. So I guess part of the idea behind DevOps is to break down the isolation between developers and operations and have them communicate more and earlier on in the process so you don't hit that bottleneck later or that design right. flaw later and then have to develop a shim to get around it. Right. Now, I, it seems to me that developers already have a lot of stuff on their plate. Like they're already responsible for learning how to uh, write in a different uh, framework for JavaScript every week. (laughs) They're already responsible for setting up their continuous integration. You know, they're adding new features or whole new uh, services to an application. And so I think to a certain degree, the focus from the DevOps side was really the ops folks embracing developer technologies to better facilitate the deployment side of things. Right. And part of that is the fact that developing is developing software and writing code is hard. <laughs> and even for those of us who have a CS background, it still is hard. Yeah, the way that I talk about that is... Um... 
as a as a scripter or as somebody that somewhat understands. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I talk about developers, I use the phrase capital P programmer. Okay. Because I think there's a huge difference between somebody that understands C code and can read a few lines if it's well commented and somebody that can sit down and build a self-contained application of any sort, of any, it does not take long to get to a level of complexity that requires a capital P programmer. Right. And so that's not necessarily what we're trying to build on the ops side in the world of DevOps. We're just trying to build something that avoids ops being the department of no. Right. Because typically that ops values stability and control and devs value delivering new services and features. So one wants to push changes and the other one never wants to change anything because changing things means something is probably going to break. Right. And both of them can have the problem of the business itself not understanding IT in general, (laughs) thus either demanding of their internal teams or promising to external partners and customers the impossible. Right, that it is going to have new features every week and it is never going to break. Right. (laughs) And the two of us stare at each other going, screw you, I'm not letting you implement those changes. Well, no, I have to deliver these services or I don't get a raise. It's, It's, the problem is one of incentives. And I think this is somewhere in my notes later on, but it came up now, so we'll just talk about it now. If you think about the incentive structure for developers, their incentive and the way that they get you know, paid and raises and all that is to introduce new services and features that the customers want. Mm-hmm. Ops, generally speaking, and this, this depends on organization, but they have certain SLAs or SLOs that they're meant to meet that mostly have to do with uptime. Right. So they're incentivized to not allow changes into the system because change can mean that systems go down, which means that they won't get that bonus at the end of the year. And if you want a good example of that, I recommend everybody at least a couple of times a day, check the website (laughs) downdetector.com. So for example, today, Proton Mail was down for over an hour. Not great. Proton Mail being a relatively important player in the email and security space. Mm-hmm. And you can host your email there. You can do a lot of things with security, blah, 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 blah. Their email system was inaccessible. I hear that's bad. And that's not good. Oh, that's not okay. good. Um, <laughs> now, a lot of people are probably like, I don't care. I've never even heard of it. But imagine if that happened with Gmail or Outlook.com. Mm-hmm. People would lose their mind. So when the, there is a market demand for this type of perfection, it puts both teams in an impossible situation. And then you have to add in the additional layers of other teams who have a stake in this. So think about the security team. What's their incentive? Oh, to... now come on. Nobody ever thinks about the security team. Well, you say that, but they're, <laughs> they sometimes have the ability to put the kibosh on things. And their incentive is to reduce attack surface and minimize breaches. Right. The hardest thing to breach is the thing that is not running or is not open in any way. So their goal is to not add new services and features because those could introduce additional insecurities and vulnerabilities. Right. Everybody knows that the most secure computer is the one that's still in the box. Exactly. I'm sure that someone has come up with a way to hack that involving like fans and magnetic resonance. But, you know, that's probably a conversation for another day. And then you have the finance team. And their incentive is to keep costs low. So for them, the only change they want to see is that the bill goes down instead of up. So you have at least four competing different factions who all are incentivized differently. Right. But the actual thing they should all be incentivized towards is increasing the revenue of the company which is probably going to happen through a combination of stability, new features and services, and security. Forget the finance people, they don't matter. But the other three. (laughs) So that's what DevOps was supposed to be. And the way that it, 
the way that if you look at the report from like Dora, the Explorer. Yeah, she has this map. Well, I think the monkey has the map. Hard to say. But if you look That's, on the map. That sounds like some spy shit. The monkey has the map. I repeat, the monkey yeah, has the map. <laughs> the condor's in the tower. The condor <laughs> is in the tower, people. So there's the state of, state of DevOps report that's produced by Dora. And basically what they say is the core thing that companies want to do is ship software to the client that enhances their experience and retains or increases the revenue. That's a good thing. And the way that they do that is to have high functioning teams that ship more often with an automated approach, which may seem like it would reduce reliability and security and stability and all of those things that the ops and security people really like. But it turns out when you make small incremental changes often, the chances of you doing something catastrophic are actually lower. Right. And your systems are less brittle because they're used to change. So, And that's, yeah, the small and incremental approach is really the key, right? So if you're doing micro updates, so 3.0.0.1, 3.0.0.2, the goal there is a small step at a time. If something does go wrong, it's not going to take down your entire email system. <laughs> exactly. So I guess a couple questions to round this out because we've been yammering on for a while here and, and this this could be a two episode uh, thing if we wanted it to be. But I, I think the whole point of DevOps was to create a closed loop, a feedback loop. And if you look at any of the like branding for DevOps, DevOps and Agile, that's what it is. It's this figure eight closed loop where there's feedback from what goes into production back into the development lifecycle so that it can be iteratively improved over time. And that right. requires buy-in from both the dev and ops side. Now, there was this idea for a while where you would have one or two ops people embedded with a group of developers for each application. Sort of the two pizza team idea. But that doesn't seem to be the most effective way based off the research and patterns that you're seeing emerge at most of the companies. What you're actually seeing is platform teams coming about where companies are building what is essentially an internal product, the platform that the developers inside of the company can use to deploy their applications. And the platform team the good ones, the ones that are listening to developers and actually designing and deploying what they need, make it so that developers don't have to learn a whole bunch of new tools. They just have to learn a simple process to onboard their application. And the platform has the things that they need already built in for proper monitoring and backup and security and all of those other things that they may, may not have time to worry about. Right. Is that DevOps? I mean, it feels like the two magnets got close together and then bounced apart again. Because <laughs> exactly. what you're doing in the model that you just described, and I'm not saying this is a bad model, but it's not the same thing. What you're doing is telling the developers, once again, the platform doesn't matter. Focus on your code and let us handle the moving parts and the widgets. Right. But we're going to develop and and deliver a platform that meets your needs and the way that you want to deploy and manage the lifecycle of your applications. Right. But it's still a bit of a silo, right? You have your platform team, which sits outside of any of these application teams. And that gets me back to the original point that I said we were going to come back to, and I did it. I did it, Chris. We're all the way back to the original point. Silos aren't necessarily a bad thing. I'm going to compare this to the open office concept. Sounds great in theory. We're going to no, break down the walls. Everybody's going to be sitting in the same room and it'll just be an open and free exchange of ideas. It'll be collaboration. People will self-organize and it'll be great. And you know and what I it was? I just broke out in hives. Yes, it was terrible. It was terrible because people need silos. People need structure. People need privacy sometimes, <laughs> you know? And in the same regard, the idea of breaking down all silos between 
all these various teams, dev and ops and security, finance, et cetera, is not a good plan. What you do need to do is enhance collaboration and communication across the teams right. when it's necessary. Maybe that's what I mean, DevOps really is. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think that the original idea was just an incomplete idea. Now that we've seen what happens in the real world, we can modify what we're aiming for rather than try to force this idea that has too many holes and it forces people into areas outside of their expertise. When time and time again, what we also have seen is that specialization and focus on a single thing is better for everybody. Yes. <laughs> it's, we took some of the right lessons from the lean model, but missed some of the big ones. And now I think we're slowly understanding that the lean model made sense. Someone does have to develop an assembly line that everybody else is going to use. And maybe that's what we're coming back around to. So is that gonna be called DevOps? I don't know. I think that term has been abused into oblivion. Yeah, especially now. I mean, people are trying to cram as many other things. It's like blank as a service. You know, I made, I already made that joke, but that's coming back again too, buddy. <laughs> um, you know, like they're adding in DevSecOps or is it SecDevOps? Or is it DevFinOps? Right, exactly. And the concept of having some groups work together on and understand our shared goals as an organization is a good concept. Isn't that it just is a company? <laughs> <laughs> like, <sighs> yeah. So we've reinvented companies. Right. Well done, and as everybody. long as, I mean, this is the biggest thing. I think we recognize that we're, the company very quickly in, in the DevOps environment where it actually makes sense. We've gotten to a point of complexity where neither team can do this on their own. Simultaneously, neither team should focus on that because it's a waste of their time and energy. Mm -hmm. Therefore, the goal here is I help you with your goals, you help me with my goals, they combine, and the company moves forward. And as long as devs and ops can do that, in terms of communication, understand what you need, what I need, how do we get there, then we can work together, move forward, and always blame the network team. Always blame the network team. I, that's the central lesson that everyone should take away from this, I think. Right. Well, it sounds like we should just go into business consulting and charge a ridiculous fee for the things we just said out loud. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to send you my invoice. It's 500 an hour with an eight-hour minimum, so. <laughs> well, I was going to say and send you the same invoice. Ah, ah they cancel each other out. Curses. <laughs> Lightning round? Lightning round most expensive component in servers might be getting cheaper in terms of raw cost the most expensive thing in a modern server is memory specifically dram in fact according to the wall street journal memory chips make up 28 percent of all sales in the semiconductor industry prices for dram and memory chips in general surged as demand for pcs smartphones and servers grew during the pandemic trapped in our homes with nothing to do consumers well, we bought lots of new gadgets i know i certainly did companies started issuing new devices for their employees new home offices and cloud hyperscalers had to build out additional server capacity to handle the storm of digital transformation forced by the global lockdown but it would seem that our voracious appetite for delicious, delicious memory chips has been sated. And prices for DRAM tumbled 10.6% in Q2 of 2022. Chip makers like Samsung, SK Hynix, and Micron have scrambled, had scrambled, to ramp up production during the unprecedented run on devices. And now they have what could be called an excess of capacity. Taiwanese research firm Trendforce is predicting a further 22% drop in prices for Q3. Tough times for the chip makers, but a perfect time for me to drop another 128 gigabytes of RAM in my desktop because I need it, Chris. Good old capitalism. Sometimes you do function properly. Other times, next story, please.
the Twitter muskening continues to failify. The internet revels in the chaos. That's right, it's official. The deal that Elon Musk brashly demanded and then repeatedly insisted was absolutely gonna happen is now no longer gonna happen. Not good enough for Elon. Oh. The reason for this is as simple as it is irrelevant. Elon claims that Twitter is misrepresenting the amount of bot accounts on the platform. This would be a shocking and possibly actionable claim if proven true, except one, Elon has done nothing to prove that it is true. And two, Elon expressly signed away the ability to perform the kind of due diligence that would prove it true. Put simply, because of his own stupidity and impatience, Elon is stuck with this bill. And here's the fun part. Because of his obnoxious and irresponsible behavior, Musk's stock holdings, especially Tesla, have plunged over the past few months. The Muskinator has lost around $65 billion in stock value, expressly and exclusively because of his own arrogant grandstanding. This has made it next to impossible for Musk to get additional funding for the Twitter purchase, which is, of course, the real reason he's trying to slink away, and the reason that Twitter is holding his feet to the fire. He will try to leave the deal, and he might try to sue, but he will lose. Then he will probably have no choice but to sell stock, a lot of stock, so that he can float the entire $44 billion purchase in cash. This would almost certainly push him out of controlling stake in Tesla and into ownership of Twitter, which he never really wanted in the first place. One can only hope he's paying his plastic surgeon well in advance. He is going to need a lot of skin grafts to recover from this self-burn. Boom, got him. Sam, I don't like him. I did not pick up on that. <laughs> Shocking, sir. Shocking. Samsung scoops TSMC with nanometer three. Shut up, it rhymes. Okay. Dipping back into the world of chip makers, this time we're focused on the chip fabs. You know, where they actually make those amazing chips we love to dip in data queso. Don't ask me, I'm not an AI sent here to stop the multiverse from collapsing. Hmm? Defying physics and good sense, Samsung announced a couple weeks ago that they had started mass production of three nanometer chips using a gate all around transistor architecture. This beats out TSMC for the three nanometer title, a goal they had been aiming to accomplish by June of this year. The first chips out of the Samsung fab will be targeting the high-performance compute outfits who have the cash and need for ever more efficient and less power-intensive chips. According to Samsung, the new chips can reduce power consumption by 45% and improve performance by 23% when compared to the current 5 nanometer process. As production ramps up and prices begin to drop, you can expect to see the three nanometer chips appearing in mobile devices as well, which benefit from not only the lower power consumption, but also a reduction of 16 to 35% in area taken up by the chip. TSMC has a two nanometer process on the roadmap for 2025, although given their struggle with three nanometers, that timeline, it seems less than reliable. Regardless, it's only a matter of time before they hit the negative one nanometer scale and the universe inverts itself in an infinite loop until an AI is born and sent back in time to prevent the inciting incident. Or, or something. I, you know, don't worry about it. I'm not an infinite regression in six dimensions. You are. Apple investing in lockdown mode for iOS devices. Apple holds the number two spot in mobile phone market share behind only Samsung. It's important also to remember that the number one spot is held by other. <laughs> Apple has always prided themselves on having the most secure mobile devices on the market, but there's always been a concern that they're still not secure enough for those high sensitivity use cases. This week, they released a beta feature designed specifically for those use cases. Lockdown mode, as the kids call it, will go through your entire phone and make 
features an accessible data read-only or not readable, and the device far more unchangeable. The goal here is to protect against, quote, mercenary spyware and disables things such as config profile changes or MDM enrollments, the just-in-time JavaScript compilation in web browsers, non-image attachments in messages, and any calls or FaceTimes from strangers. You can't even click on links in SMS. You would have to copy and paste them into a browser. Sounds annoying, but this is actually good. This seems to be a serious move to lock down mobile devices and make it so nobody can install anything or make any changes to your phone unless lockdown mode is turned off. Makes a lot of sense. The vast majority of the time, your phone should not be getting these kinds of changes anyway. Think about it like freezing your credit. You unfreeze it when you need to buy a house. How often do you need to buy a house? Once a week? <laughs> in this economy? <laughs> Anyone who thinks they could be in danger from high-level malware should seriously give this mode some consideration. It is not ever going to be as secure as just a not smartphone, but it's a great step forward for individual security and peace of mind. To quote Twitter user at Xor, this is a really great set of features and a real step forward for people targeted by the most sophisticated adversaries. Also, pretty reasonable defaults for the professionally paranoid. Starlinking from anywhere. Previously restricted to stationary stations, Starlink and Kepler have received FCC approval to use their tech on moving vehicles, which begs the question, is it still a station if it's moving? Isn't everything moving? What does it mean to be still? Think about it. Don't, I was, oh. don't think about it. <laughs> so anyway, SpaceX applied to the FCC to approve their Earth Stations in Motion, ESIM, for use throughout the U.S., among the uses for ESIMs are airplanes, ships, and RVs, though I see no reason it couldn't be applied to regular passenger vehicles and public transportation in due time. The current approval is for a ruggedized Starlink dish and terminal that would be too big for a standard passenger car, but one has to imagine that things will shrink and adapt as the market proves itself. There's also a bit of brouhaha with the spectrum being used by the ESIMs, notably the 12.2 through 12.7 gigahertz band. Dish Network wants to use that band for a consumer cellular service. Okay. The FCC has not ruled on that decision yet, so as a concession to Dish, they have made it clear that the, contest the contested band is available for use on a non-protected non interference basis. That may change once the FCC makes a final decision, but in the meantime, Starlink and Kepler both have to make it clear in their marketing that the brand is non-interference protected to any potential customers. What actual impact that will have on the service has yet to be determined. Starlink, where latency is just sort of a thing. Microsoft does the right thing the wrong way. The accountants complain. Microsoft does the wrong thing and undoes what it did, also the wrong way. Okay, so this one's kind of a wild ride, so buckle up. Step one, Microsoft Office has for literally decades allowed macros to be run inside of spreadsheets and documents. Two, these macros are crazy powerful and are often used unwisely but widely as an actual part of business logic especially in the finance department. Three, these macros are crazy insecure as the way that they run has caused a lot of security problems over time. Four, Microsoft has for a while now had at least a banner that pops up when you download a document with macros. If they're unsigned, you are warned not to run them. This is the mark of the web stuff we've talked about in previous episodes. You were, however, still able to run them if you insist. Five, in late February, Microsoft made it so unsigned macros couldn't run at all. Hmm. 
Microsoft rightly claimed that they were too dangerous to be a part of the ecosystem. They are proven to be a major source of malware and ransomware attack vectors. CE point number three. Six, in early July, Microsoft abruptly rolled back the change while they, quote, made some additional changes to enhance usability, unquote. They, of course, didn't let anyone know in advance they were going to do this. Seven, the internet immediately called them idiots for 7A, re-enabling this attack vector, and B, doing it with next to no notice or fanfare. Rumors as to why they balked at actually securing their products abound. Some think that there are a non-zero number of three-letter agencies that use this attack vector and would like it to stay quite vectory. Thank you very much. Others think there was a heat applied by businesses who finance operations rely on 15-year-old macros that they can't update and disabling them would mean something crazy, like documenting business practices and getting modern software? Ah, no. Either way, this is a great example of how Ease of use will trump security nearly every time. Microsoft claims that this will be re-enabled later, and here's to hoping they actually stick with it this time. Security in documents that are shared widely within a company, for lack of a better word, is good. Good. Not used to hearing that word. I know. How much do you want to bet that what actually caused it was the internal finance department at Microsoft? That is a phenomenal point, and I support it wholeheartedly. <laughs> Excellent. Oh, hey, thanks for listening or something. I, I guess you found it worthwhile enough if you made it all the way to the end. So congratulations to you, friends. You accomplished something today. Sit back in your chair and envision the multiple axes on which the planet, solar system, galaxy, and universe are all traveling on. Ideate on the incomprehensible size and scope of a system that complex. Then take a nap. You've earned it. You can find me or Chris on Twitter at Ned1313 and at Hainer respectively. That's wrong. And at Hainer80 respectively. Or follow the show at chaos underscore lever if that's the kind of thing you're into. Show notes are available at chaoslever.com if you like reading things, which you shouldn't. Podcasts continue and always will be better in every conceivable way. We'll be back next week to see what fresh hell is upon us. Ta-ta for now. I'm leaving the last one. (laughs) That's fair.